All right. I invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 6. We are continuing the series of messages. We're going to do 44 weeks and go all through the Bible. And what we're doing is we're, we're looking for, um, we're kind of asking the question, how does the whole Bible in some ways tell us the story of Jesus? How does everything in the Bible in some way point to Jesus? And today we're looking at uh, what's maybe the most famous story in the whole Bible, Noah and the flood. And uh, so this is like a really long story. We're not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read some selected verses, but it would still be helpful if you had your Bibles open, and I'll just tell you where we're we're moving to get through it all. There's a lot of repetition and other things. You can read it on your own. It's a very fascinating story, Um, but it's chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9, so we'll just skip around. We'll start with verse 5 of chapter 6. The Lord saw how great humanity's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts were only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe the human race whom I have created from the face of the earth, people and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood. And then jump to chapter 7, verse 17. For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. And then chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. And then chapter 8, verse 18. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark, one kind after another. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of the human race, even though every inclination of their hearts are evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. And then our last jump to chapter 9, verse 7. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. 
Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm fairly certain that there is no story in the Bible that has more often been turned into children's picture books than our story today. Uh, I would also guess that there is no story in the Bible that has more often been painted on the walls of church nurseries than our story today. And I get it. You got a bunch of animals, big boat, rainbows. That's like, it's like picture book gold right there. Um, what is not to like about this story, huh? Oh yeah, there's that one thing. Uh, the one little thing. Uh, that, that minor plot point where God sends a flood to kill everything. Somehow the children's books don't quite seem to dwell on that point so much. You should look at these books. I think Anna has about five of them. It's amazing how deftly they just skip over the fact that, oh yeah, everybody dies. Now maybe you say, well, you know, come on, don't take it so literally. You know, uh, this is clearly like ancient mythology stuff. Uh, You know, the gods are angry, uh, punishing the world. Like that's how people used to think about God. Um, but we've got like the New Testament now, we're Christians, we got Jesus. We know that this is not how God operates, right? I mean, this is like, this is like primitive religion stuff. And it's interesting that, that it reads that way because some of you may know this. This story of the flood actually is a story that shows up in a lot of other ancient religions. So like a lot of Israel's neighbors, for instance, had these stories about the gods sending some flood and like a few people escaping on a boat. And some of the stories are really similar to the one in the Bible. But I actually think that the differences among these stories are most interesting. I think that when you compare the Bible's version with these other ancient versions, I think you see that the God of Noah and the flood is really not so different from the God of Jesus and the cross. And I think that's a good thing for us, not a bad thing. So one of the common themes in the other flood stories is that the gods are angry at humanity for some reason. Actually, uh, overpopulation is a common reason. Now you know where Thanos gets his idea from. Little Avengers Affinity War. Drew, you were the only one. The only one who got that. So overpopulation is often a reason the gods send a flood. Uh, but sometimes it was just like the, the gods or the, the people just didn't offer enough sacrifices. There's all kinds of reasons. And, and usually what happens is then like a bunch of the gods decide like we got to wipe out all of humanity. And then there's like one or two rebel gods that are like secretly trying to rescue people. Uh, so there's like this tension, right? There's this tension between like the angry faction and the merciful Faction. But what's fascinating about the Bible's version is that the God of the Bible is 
both factions at once. So he's both merciful, but also sort of angry. So you got to think about what's happened in the last few weeks since, since God created humanity. So God created the world. He's like this gracious host, right? Um, he welcomes in his guests. It's good. It's this perfect place for humanity. He creates us in his image. He, he gives us this task to take care of the creation. And then he says, he says, trust me. Trust, trust that I know what's good and not good. Trust that I know what's best for you. Trust me when I tell you not to eat that fruit. Trust me when I tell you that you are all created in the image of God. Trust me. But of course we know that they didn't, right? So Genesis 3 verse 6, they eat the fruit and this trust in God's goodness is broken and, and things just start to, things start to spiral. Chapter 4 verse 8, Adam and Eve's son, uh, Cain, murders their other son, Abel. Uh, a couple generations later, the, the Bible tells us about this guy Lamech. Chapter 4, verse 18. Uh, and Lamech shows up and he sings this song about killing a guy who messed with him. And Lamech brags that he is 11 times more violent than Cain ever was. And then right before our story today, we get this strange set of stories. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, about the sons of God and the Nephilim. By the way, one of my favorite commentators said about those four verses, he said, the effort taken to try to figure out this business of the Nephilim and the sons of God, he says, uh, the effort taken to figure it out will not be rewarded with equal benefit of insight and application. Um, in other words, we don't, we don't really know what's going on here. Um, but we can tell this, uh, whatever's going on is so bad that we read that God shortens how long people can live, like the natural course of life. So you notice this pattern. Things are bad and they're getting worse. Like right, so right from chapter 3, verse 6, Genesis is picturing humanity and it's just this spiral down, down, down. And he, he's punished them by kicking them out of the garden and he's punished them by shortening their lives, but it's not working. God's good creation, it's out of control and, and it turns from good to bad so fast and so completely that God can actually say in chapter 6, verse 5, that Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart are only evil all the time. So the question is, what's God going to do? Like, like, how should God respond? Like, what do you do when someone trashes the place you've invited them into and starts killing the other guests? And I know we want to get to, you know, God, love, and forgiveness and all that, but like, if you give this just a moment's thought, you have to allow that anger and judgment make a lot of sense here. God here actually has a lot better reason to be angry than the gods and all those other ancient flood myths. If God wasn't angry about behavior like Cain's or Lamech's, that would be weird. I was thinking about uh, Lance you know, who helps to run the, the farm over at New City Neighbors, like with Holly and Stephen. And you guys know Lance, right? So Lance goes to great lengths to point out to the students that he's working with on the farm, like what a good thing the farm is. 
and, and how each part of the farm like contributes to this beautiful whole and, and how the farm is this gift and, and how they as students have this opportunity to like help be stewards of this gift and, and even just enjoy how good it is. Well now imagine if one of his students, having learned all this, steals the keys to the new New City neighbor's van and, and just drives the van through the fields, over the plants, plows through the hoop houses. If Lance and Holly and Stephen just shrugged. If they just said, well, you know, that happens. You know? I mean, that would be weird, wouldn't it? You would wonder, wouldn't you, if, if Lance really meant what he said when he said that the gardens were this good gift. I mean, if he just shrugged, you'd wonder if he was really ever invested in the farm at all. But now let's say that Lance restrains himself. He, he talks to the kid. They process what happened, and Lance punishes the kid, but uh, tells him it's serious, and eventually lets the kid back. Well, what if the kid's next day on the farm, the kid does it again, except this time also hurts one of the fellow students in the process? Right? What if things just keep spiraling down, down, down? If Lance was still like, well, you know, that's just the way life goes, you would seriously question his judgment, wouldn't you? There are situations where if you don't get angry, we're going to wonder if you really care. Well, God cares about His creation. He cares passionately about it. The Bible really makes no mistake about that. But notice that despite that, the text never tells us that God is angry. It uses a different word. In chapter 6, verse 6, it says that the Lord was grieved. It says His heart was filled with pain. You know, you know, the logical step for God, in a way, you know, watching the spiral of deepening violence, the logical step is to kick these humans out of this creation. Not just to the garden, but the whole creation, which of course means He'd have to wipe, wipe them out. Just start over. That's, in some ways, the logical choice. I mean, think about Lance. I think about as, as much as New City Neighbors as an organization tries to resolve conflict really intentionally and, and process bad behavior, like sometimes you just need to kick someone out of the program. Like they just, it's not safe, it's not good for them to be around. And it sure sounds in Genesis 6 like we've reached that point. But here's the wrinkle. What do you do if despite it all, you still love them. Like for Lance, like what if you're, you're deeply invested, not in just the farm, but you are also deeply invested in the student who's messing up the farm? What if you can't help yourself and you're just so invested in the student that you love them? I think what happens is you feel not just anger, you feel grief. I think this is such a radical moment in the Bible. It's, it's unique among all the flood accounts in the ancient world. God is grieved. You see, grief includes anger, but grief has something else in it too. Grief is anger and love at the same time. You see, the, the story in the Bible gives us this incredible glimpse into God's heart. A very intimate moment. And what we see is God realizing something tragic. 
God realizes over the course of this story that if He sticks with us, grief is His destiny. It would be like if Lance realized this kid would never shape up. But he, lo- he loved the kid too much to, to kick him out. Uh, Lance would feel this grief. And it wouldn't just be grief like, oh, this is a bad situation. It would be this grief because Lance would know what's coming. To have this kid on the farm every day. Right? You'd know how much work it was going to be to stick with this student. You would know how much heartache it was going to be to let them stay. You would know how much harder your life is going to be, how much you are going to suffer if you stick with that student and allow them to stay. God realizes that if this creation is going to continue, if this humanity that He loves so much is going to go on, He realizes that for that to happen, for Him not to wipe it all out, it means God is destined to suffer. He's going to have to watch His creation and His creatures harmed again and again and again. And there will be no end to the grief. God will have to bear in Himself this tension between His love for humanity and His anger at what they do. So God does send a flood. But inexplicably, for reasons of sheer mercy, because love makes you do crazy things, He doesn't give up on the human race. He makes sure it continues. And so the flood comes. Uh, Forty days of rain, five months floating, another five months waiting for the waters to come down. And finally, Noah and the crew get out of the boat. And they offer a sacrifice to God. And, and, and God, says, God says this. And it is to me, it's one of the most incredible lines in the whole Bible. It's chapter 8, verse 21. He says, Never again will I curse the ground because of humankind. And then look at this. Even though every inclination of their hearts are evil from childhood. So you catch that. This is after the flood. Like, it didn't fix the underlying problem. (laughs) The even though in verse 21 is huge. Even though God knows His creatures still cannot live up to their end of the bargain. Even though God knows still they're going to mess things up. Even though God knows still they're going to steal the keys and drive into the field. Even though God knows still that to keep this promise He will have to suffer. Even though God says, I will never give up on you. Never again. And by the way, God was right to be pessimistic about us. In, in chapter 9, verse 20, Noah, you know, righteous Noah, walks with God, Noah, hope of humanity, Noah, gets plastered. Uh, first drunk in the Bible, kicks off this awful sequence of events, totally messes up his family. It's a disaster. That's who God is making his promise to drunks and disasters. You see now how God is setting Himself up to suffer. Sticking with people like us. But then this is where things get really trippy, I think. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 3. God has made His promise, His covenant, not to destroy everything again. and, And He gives this sign, a reminder of the promise. And 
And, and what does our Bible say the sign is? I'm, I'm really asking this time. It's a rainbow, right? Now, the Hebrew word for rainbow there is the word keset. Okay? But here's the thing. Keset doesn't mean rainbow. It just means bow, as in bow and arrow, right? As in like the, the primary weapon of war in this age of civilization. So now close your eyes, if you will, for a moment. Picture a typical rainbow in the sky. And now imagine that it represents God's war bow, okay? His weapon of judgment. And I'm wondering, what direction is the bow pointing? pointing up, right? It's pointing back to God. You know that old saying, like you're making a promise and you say, cross my heart, hope to die? That's the rainbow. We love to talk about God's promises and the rainbow, but this story, this sign give us a pretty grim reminder that for God to keep this promise, there's a price that will have to be paid. For God to keep this promise, there will be no end to His grief. He's destined to suffer. You know, people sometimes wonder when you're talking about this story, like, yeah, but did it really happen? I mean, right, you, you pick a hundred scientists off the street, it's going to be hard to find even one who thinks that the earth was once covered all the way up past the mountains with water, right? But you know, the question of whether this literally happened is a little bit beside the point. You know, all these other ancient cultures had these flood narratives. And, and one explanation for that, of course, is that, well, there was this one giant flood, just like the Bible says. And another explanation, if you were kind of a cynic, would be that, well, all these civilizations lived along major rivers. And what do major rivers do? They flood. Major floods. And you know what happens every time there's a flood? Or every time an earthquake hits or some other natural disaster? It still happens today. People wonder if the gods are angry. Whenever catastrophe strikes, right? whenever the floodwaters rise, whenever life gets really hard, right? you get cancer, car accidents, house fires, war, famine, knife attacks, suicide bombers. Like Whenever life gets really hard, humans ask, are the gods angry? Is God against me? Has God given up on me? Right? These are not primitive questions. I mean, how many of us are wondering that right now in our lives? It's more than a few. Has God given up on us? It's a question God's people have asked in every generation. And it's why a story like this is so important so early in the Bible. Is God against us? Right? Life is hard. Bad stuff is happening. Are we to assume that if we are suffering, God has given up on us? And the defiant answer of this story is that God will never give up on His creation. Even though He knows 
what it will cost him, even though he knows that for this to work, he will have to suffer. You know, Israel got the sign of the rainbow to remind them that God would not destroy them. The the rainbow was for God's people this this promise made in the sky that, that God had decided to turn the tension he felt between anger and love and turn it in on himself instead of us. The the rainbow represented God's promise made. But we Christians have an even more powerful sign. It's an even more vivid reminder of just how far God is willing to suffer to not give up on us. See, the rainbow represents God's promise made. And the cross represents God's promise kept. What a love, what a cost. Whatever it takes, he says, I will never give up on you. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that as we go through times in our lives that feel very much like overwhelming floods, uh, that you would remind us of your never-failing, never-giving-up love that you would point us to the cross and remind us that there is nothing, neither life nor death, that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. To that hope we cling in Jesus' name. Amen.